Hi, Mars Hill. Happy first Sunday of Lent. Today's reading comes from John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. The title in my Bible says, Jesus Arrested. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. <clears throat> it's great to be with you. I think this is my, I feel like this is my first time at Mars Hill. Now, last year, I was with you a number of times, but it was once from my office in my house, and the other times were in here with Dan only. <clears throat> so I, I just, I, I kept wondering, I kept asking Ashley, you know, are there really people in this church? What's the deal? So it's wonderful to see that there are so many of you, um, and of course, we're all spaced out, but it's fantastic to be with you here at Mars. I have to tell you that Ashley and Delwin are old friends of mine from, uh, we sort of overlapped for a number of years at Willow Creek in Chicago. And uh, I just want to say, you have just got an amazing, they're not here so I can talk about them, right? Anyway, they are just so gifted. Delwin in worship, I mean, is that incredible or what? You guys have landed the most incredible worship leader anywhere in the Midwest. So it's incredible. And of course, Ashley, uh, spiritually insightful teacher, amazing. So you are working with the Gospel of John, and of course the Gospel of John is a premier story about the life of Jesus, and I'm so glad that you're doing this. It is a really rich Gospel that has all kinds of secondary and deep spiritual meanings that I'll show you about today. Last week you talked about John chapter 17, and you talked about the final prayer of Jesus. This week what we're going to do is look at the arrest of Jesus in the Gospel of John, which is very different than you have in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. <clears throat> But I want to begin by saying that you're actually come in the Gospel of John to a turning point in the whole story. John 18 is a turning point. It is a threshold. 
the darkness that you've been hearing about in the Gospel of John, which is opposed to Jesus, the darkness is going to try to seize him. And all they're going to get is distortion and confusion as they go about their business. Now, what we know is that every great story has what we can call a great reveal. That's for sure, it is. Every great story has a turning point where the one hidden thing that becomes crystal clear and suddenly you know how the whole story works. Aha, that guy was the spy. Oh, she was the murderer after all. And then everything falls together perfectly. You know how that goes in a story? It's kind of like the great reveal. And I thought to myself, what is an excellent example of this? And I thought of something we would all know probably a little bit. Do you all know C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories? Uh, He was a Christian, English. This is about as, yeah, okay, you all get that. Anyway, now, C.S. Lewis was a professor of literature in Oxford. Um, He was a very skilled writer. Even though the Narnia stories are intended for children, I I just went back and read them straight through about five or six years ago. I was astonished. They're not just for children. These are actually also for adults. Anyway, as as a professor of literature, he knew how a story should be constructed And anyone who's reading through the Narnia Chronicles really then just move through it and they don't realize that they are reading a master craftsman. Now, I have in my hands here the first volume of the uh, Narnia Chronicles. This is The Wallain, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's something that you should think about when you pick up this book. When, where is the great reveal? When is the first time that the name Aslan, lion, is uttered? When is the first time that Aslan is actually seen by the four children? Because he's kind of a shadowy figure all the way till you get to about page 50 or so. The children have a hunch that there's something going on that's weird in this wintry forest of Narnia, where it's always winter but never Christmas. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, if you turn, in fact, I know you're not going to turn to it, but anyway, if you go to page 54 of, I think it's chapter 7, I'm going to read to you the first time that the name of Asland is uttered. Now, the children are in the house of the beavers. By the way, if you don't know, animals can speak inside of Narnia. At least some of them can. So they're in the house of the beavers, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are explaining the reality of Narnia And Mrs. Beaver says, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken those words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. (laughs) 
Now what's interesting is that the name of Aslan discloses what's going on in each child's heart. Now, Lewis was a very, very profound Christian who knew the literature of the Gospels extremely well. And in fact, the reactions of these four children inside of this story here are mirrored in the reactions of people to Jesus and the Gospel of John. No accident that the hero of this story next to Aslan is Peter, the lead disciple among the twelve. All right, so you can see that when this reveal happens, the name of the lion is given, everyone feels it, but they don't know why. Now, Aslan has not been seen. No one actually knows what he looks like, but the children simply know there is this Aslan who's about to land. He isn't seen until page 103. Now, you can bet that Lewis is timing this carefully so that the great reveal, he builds up to the climax of the great reveal, and suddenly there is this. As for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been to Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good or terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of his golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him anymore and they went all trembly. I love that word. They go trembly. What you have here in Narnia is the great reveal. Here suddenly now the mask is off and you discover that this land of Narnia is being taken back by the great golden lion with a name that makes you feel funny inside. This is the great reveal. Now when it comes to the Gospels, you have the very same thing going on. In fact, John knows this very same principle because what he's moving toward is the great reveal. And this morning, we have a chance to look at it. It's a great passage. Now, when you come to John chapter 18, John assumes there are things you know already. What does John know you know? Well, for instance, he knows already, you already know, he's assuming that Jesus is the light who has come into the world. Take a look, for instance, at John 1, 1 through 5 with me. The entire gospel raises its curtain with this beautiful hymn or song in the first 18 verses of the gospel. It's beautiful, and I'm sure that you studied it already. But here as you look at 1, 1 through 18, you have this remarkable statement about what it is that's happening in the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's go to the next slide, okay? And we can see the text up on the screen. There we go. 
Okay, so here, look at this great opening, and we discover that what this phenomenon really is is that light is coming into the world, and the world is a place of darkness, and so therefore, when this light arrives, it's going to illumine the reality of everything around it. But at once you have a hint, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not I've given you the Greek word here just because it's such an insight. Paralambano is interesting. Lambado means to receive or take something. Paralambano means to grab it and take it and seize it. Now, you can do this with your mind. You can grab, seize something with your mind. And so, therefore, paralambano means comprehend something because you've seized it with your head. But you can also seize something with your hand. The word can be used that way as well. Whenever a demon takes over a person in the Gospels, this is the verb that's used. They take the person. So here, actually, what John is saying is that the light comes into the darkness, and the darkness is not ever going to be successful in capturing it, seizing it, taking it hostage. So immediately, as you read the Gospel of John, you have this hunch that a conflict is brewing. You don't just learn about Aslan inside of Narnia. You learn about the White Witch early on in the story. Am I right about that? And as the story unfolds, you know in this wintry forest, there is a White Witch moving through the story, and then there is the lion who's come to take back the forest. They are going to clash. So in the very beginning of this gospel, you see that there is light that will struggle with darkness. Look at the next passage in John chapter 9. You know this story already, I imagine. Here in John chapter 9, you have a blind man who gets healed by Jesus, and then the poor blind man gets interrogated by all of the leaders of Jerusalem. The irony in the story is this. Here is a man who has lived in darkness, but Jesus heals him, and then he is filled with light. Do you see how it works? But then he's interrogated by leaders who can see. They're not blind. They apparently have light, but you discover they're actually living in darkness because they can't see the reality of what has just happened. So therefore, John writes it this way. The, here's what the leaders actually say when they meet the blind man and he's been healed. Give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. That's what they say on the stage to describe Jesus. He's a sinner. How can he do this? Verse 29, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Jesus has just brought light into darkness, and all you get coming from these leaders is confusion and ambiguity. All right. Then, let's take a look at the last one I want to show you. John chapter 11, you've already studied this. This is the raising of Lazarus. Now, remember, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, Bethany area, toward the end of his ministry. He comes to Bethany, and there is Lazarus who has died, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, what happens, this brings all kinds of confusion to the leadership of Jerusalem. People start telling the leadership that this has just happened and it might cause a stir in Jerusalem, so maybe we should put a stop to this kind of thing. And then look at what they say. Here I am in John chapter 11. But some of the people went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. When the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting then of the high council, what are we accomplishing, they say? 
Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our holy site and our temple and our nation. They immediately think about political consequences. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. How ironic. Yes, Jesus will die for the sake of the nation's sins, but Caiaphas is thinking about a political transaction to save the politics of his day. All right. So you can see how the story unfolds. You have darkness, you have light that is coming into the world. There's going to be an inevitable conflict. Aslan and the White Witch are going to hit each other eventually. We know it's going to happen. If you look in John's gospel then, you have a pattern. There's a pattern that is set up nicely for us. So therefore, Jesus is bringing light into the world, and you can see that in the first 10 chapters. Then what happens in chapters 11 and 12, the darkness begins to close in and you have hints of it all through the narrative. It's getting worse and worse. The white witch is getting closer and closer and therefore third step, Jesus retreats into the upper room in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, 17 and he gets his followers together to prepare them for the inevitable clash. And then in chapter 18, he is ready. He steps out of the upper room. It is nighttime. It is dark. Symbols. He steps out of the upper room and he says, I'm ready to confront the white witch. Now, this story about the arrest of Jesus is, is, is a story that has nuances that we have to see carefully. First of all, I thought I would show you a map. I brought a map with me. I mean, you know, I'm in a classroom all the time. I'm at Calvin Seminary, so I'm used to maps, you know, and quizzes. We'll have a quiz too. Anyway, so here's a map of the city of Jerusalem, and you see there where I put the upper room. You see there at the bottom, it's in a white box. So we know they had the Passover meal inside the city of Jerusalem. Um, it was the law. You had to be inside the walled city to have that meal. Then what they did that night is they walked through the city of Jerusalem and then they went up north. You can see there Gethsemane and outside there's a valley. There's the valley right there, which is on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. It's called the Kidron Valley. And you can see the section of the temple wall. Do you see it? I have a black arrow on top of it. So there is the temple wall and then it comes down into the valley and they are olive gardens all the way through this area. So there's a garden there and that's where Jesus was arrested. In fact, today, in the next slide, you'll see there are actual olive groves that are all in this area here. And so this is the location. I just simply point this out to you because when we talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't want you to think of roses and dandelions. <laughs> this is not a European garden. Instead, he is arrested in an olive orchard. That's the idea. All right, let's look at the text again now. And I want to point out a couple of things which I think we may have missed on our first read. Let's look at it carefully because I want to illustrate a few things. Now remember, Judas Iscariot was one of the 12. He has already given up Jesus. Judas Iscariot has told the leadership of Jerusalem where they might find him. He had a favorite place to pray down in the Kidron Valley in the garden area down there under the olive trees, okay. 
This is the only night of the year in Jerusalem where all of the gates are left open. It's Passover night, so they can come and go with ease. So Judas Iscariot has told the leadership, okay, this is where you're going to find him. Judas Iscariot leads the leadership to that location, and then Judas Iscariot hands Jesus over. Do you remember in Narnia which of the children hand over Aslan to the white witch? Edmund. The very same thing. The mechanics of Edmund's activity are the mechanics of Judas Iscariot in the Narnia story. All right, so therefore, what we know in the story is that when they'd finished praying, they left, they crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was a garden. They went into it to pray. Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place. But look at the description of who shows up in verse 3. Judas came to the garden with a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. What in the world? There was a military uh, installation there at the temple in Jerusalem. There was a whole sort of base, walled base. It was a fortified structure. We know about it. We've excavated it. And there were a number, probably about a thousand Roman soldiers there. This is a detachment from them. So there are Roman soldiers, a considerable number, and they have an officer in charge. He's named later. Some officials from the chief priests. So therefore, the political leadership of Jerusalem and the Pharisees are there too. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing everything that was going to happen, he says, who is it that you want? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Right away, I thought that was kind of funny because, you know, Jesus must have looked just like the rest of these Galileans, you know? He's been in the city for a couple of days. Couldn't they identify him? Didn't his robes glow in the dark? I mean, you wonder about this. Anyway, say that we want Jesus of Nazareth. Now look at the next word. I am he. It doesn't exactly say that. I'll explain in a moment. Judas the traitor was standing with them. Then Jesus said, I am he. In Greek, it's ego emi. It's me. And they drew back and they fell to the ground. Hmm. Then Jesus asked, well, what is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these other men go. And he said this so that the word would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. This in verse 10 is when Simon Peter, who I don't know what he was thinking, he has a sword on his belt, he pulls it out, and he strikes a slave named Malchus. How did Malchus's name get remembered all through Christian history? I don't know. Maybe he was converted after that moment. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. Then the detachment of soldiers and its commander and Jewish officers, they arrested Jesus and they brought him to the high priest, former high priest actually, named Annas. Now, there in that conversation, who, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and Caiaphas said um, to the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man were to die for the people. In other words, there is something dangerous happening here, and so therefore we perhaps should sacrifice him for the better good of the nation. All right, now let me just put some footnotes into the story so that we've got the scene exactly right. 
I've already told you that this is an olive orchard. It is called Gethsemane. You've heard this before, but Gethsemane means olive press in Hebrew. So these are olive orchards that are all on the east side of Jerusalem, okay? We also know that it's nighttime, which means it's dark. It is dark. It's a familiar place. It's around midnight. Jesus has chosen a place between Jerusalem and Bethany to the east, so therefore it's convenient. He spends the nights in Bethany. They come in this dark with lanterns, and therefore this has been the subject of enormous art. So imagine, if you will, a darkened olive orchard, and my goodness, it's dark there. There's no electricity. They're holding up lanterns, and in the great art of the medieval world, there is one face that is shining. It is, of course, the face of Jesus, one light. Now, there is this arresting party. This is an incredible group of people. Are they expecting conflict? They're fully armed. What are they thinking here? Is Jesus a terrorist or a militant? Even Simon Peter is confused. Then you've got the Jewish rulers of the temple. They're the politicians. And then you've got the religious leaders as well. You've got the chief priests. You've got Pharisees. If you thought in your imagination that a small band of people, maybe five or six, came to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, think again. There was a mob down there, and they are all acting purposefully. There is a mob. So therefore, what you, Jesus, notice, is not disturbed he knows exactly what's going to happen. He is ready to step into this darkness, into this moment. He gives himself up. He is not taken. Do you remember when you read John chapter 10? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. No one takes my life from me, but I lay down my life of my own accord. Jesus goes into this moment voluntarily. Now, this brings us to the great reveal inside of the gospel. When asked, Jesus identifies himself in a very peculiar way. We want Jesus of Nazareth, they say. I am. You're what? <laughs> this is really bad Greek. In other words, whenever you say I, ego, am, a me, ego, a me, I am, well, I am on the faculty at Calvin. I am in Granville. I am something, but you don't say it without a predicate that says something. Instead, Jesus simply says, I am. So when it translates it in your Bible, I am he, no, he doesn't really exist in the text. Now, as soon as Jesus says, I am, what did they do? They fall to the ground. Now, this is the moment that Lucy meets Aslan. This is the great reveal. The hints about the identity of Jesus that have been suggested all through the gospel suddenly now come into crystal clarity. Jesus is not simply saying, I am Jesus who comes from Nazareth. The crowd does not fall back or anything because somehow they were psychologically ambushed. The crowd does not fall because the guy in the front stepped back and got somebody else's sandal and the whole thing went over like dominoes. 
It isn't the force of Jesus' personality. I have read all of those suggestions in a book. The I am is the divine name of God in the Old Testament. That's the surprise. That's the reveal. Do you know that when Moses was up on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, he is curious to know, who is this God who is calling his people out of Egypt? I just want to know your name. In the ancient Near East, every God had a very great name, the God of war, the God of fertility and, and, and fields, the God of love, the God of something, the God of thunder. So Moses says, what God are you? And the voice from the burning bush says, I am that I am. I am the one who exists, Yahweh. Now, when that name from Exodus 3.14 was translated into Greek by the Jews, it was translated with ego eimi, I am in Greek. It's incredible. Jesus is actually using the language of Exodus 3.14. Jesus is using the language of the burning bush up on Mount Sinai. Even throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus implies that he's going to use this name again and again. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. Do you guys remember reading all that kind of thing? Hints, hints, and hints. But now in the Kidron Valley, God's name is said. And like Moses there is only one thing you should do when the divine name of God is uttered before you. You fall on your face and you do not get up. There is power in the name. You belong on your face when you are in a temple. You belong on your face when the great reveal happens. So here Jesus has revealed himself the great reveal, the bright light has blasted the darkness. The soldiers, their commander, the priests, the Pharisees, the politicians are impacted by the revelation. But what do they do? They get back up on their feet and they arrest him. Like Pontius Pilate in the next chapter, they have all the evidence but not willing to act on what they know. Now, the problem here inside of this story is who can recognize Jesus correctly? Who is going to recognize him correctly? This is the, the beginning, the true beginning of what's called the passion story, the crucifixion story, the story of arrest, trial, suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection for Jesus. But as this well-known story unfolds, John wants you to go to a deeper level. In John, this is the story about the collapse of spiritual leadership. In John's gospel, this is a story about the collapse of spiritual leadership. Remember John chapter 10, it's linked to these stories right here. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and as he says he's the good shepherd, it implies there are bad 
bad shepherds out there. So this is a story about spiritual leadership. These are the bad shepherds in action. These are the bad shepherds that are out to destroy the light. These are spiritual leaders who cannot recognize the light, the I am, right when it's in front of them. When the great reveal happens, they can't tell a lion from a donkey. Whoa, what kind of blindness is that? These men are guilty of collusion. These religious spiritual leaders are guilty of betraying their vocation. These spiritual leaders have fallen into darkness. They have made alliances with the military and the police. He is a terrorist. These are militants. He's a troublemaker. Get the handcuffs. They make plans with the political engineers of their day. We want the politics with Rome to go well, you know. And he's a troublemaker, so therefore, in order to stabilize the political world, we need to take him in, bring on the handcuffs. So they are all in the garden together, assembled in the Kidron Valley. They have swords and clubs and guns and tear gas. The spiritual leaders have collapsed, and they belong to the darkness. This story is a warning. The parade of characters to come, Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, are creatures of the dark. And now Jesus is in their hands. We live in a time of enormous and dramatic spiritual compromise. When Christians and their leaders cannot see Jesus clearly. For some, he has been handed over to Pilate and Caiaphas by our pastors. When on January 6th, I see a cross and a scaffolding together in the hands of a mob in front of our capital, we should say to ourselves, something is amiss. Jesus is not a pawn to save the nation. Those are Caiaphas' words. When Jesus says, I am, I can tell you what these men in the garden should have done. They only had one option. They should have fallen on their faces and repented. Like Moses, I am in front of the true and living God. Woe is me. I am unclean. Instead, they get up, they grab the great I am, and they march him into their agenda. The arrest of Jesus is a warning to all of us because there are some in the church that would take Jesus similarly. Lord, have mercy. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus clearly, 
to embrace his vision for himself. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us when we have taken him hostage for what we want done in the world. Lord, have mercy. Amen.